morning, church. We are, uh, I'm real bad at math, so we did 17 generations last week, and we did three this morning. So how many is that? 20 generations. And who remembers what we're counting generations from? Adam and Eve, stomping the devil, yeah. Where God says, I'm going to take care of the problem. Like he promises the serpent, I'm going to take care of this issue, right? So it's 20 generations. We're starting um, a new chapter today. And we're in the middle of this series that we've called The Waiting Game. Um, And sometimes it feels like God is taking his time. And he said he's going to do something, and we trust God that he's good, and and he's going to fulfill his promises, but it seems like he's never going to get it done. So the waiting game is we're waiting for God to do what he said he's going to do. And he made a promise in the garden, our first generation, to the serpent, but Eve heard it. And Eve waited her whole life to see God fulfill his promise and didn't get to see it. You know, eight, nine hundred years. And so then... From Eve, we counted 17 generations. I think this one was Abraham. This one was Abraham. To Abraham. And it seems like God's going to take care of it. And so, so God gives his promises to Abraham. And Abraham, he's just so eager. He's like, God, I see what you want to do in my life. And I just want to help you. And he gets involved and tries to help. And things not go well. And we learn that maybe sometimes when God says, wait, like what he means is, Wait. And today, we're going to be talking about Abraham's great, great, great grandson, one of his great, great, great grandsons. And this is a story I don't think I've ever heard in church, Um, and I'm a little bit nervous to share it with you, but it's about a guy named Judah. And we recognize the name Judah. We read some some prophecy and and some some stuff out of Revelation that, that equates Jesus and Judah. But Judah wasn't supposed to be... On, on the line. Like Judah gets grappled in and brought into God's story in a way that he, it's, it's kind of, it's interesting. That's what we're going to talk about today. So we're going to spend the whole thing talking about Judah. But it's one of those situations where if Eve heard the promise and she just waited for it to happen and it never happened. And Abraham knew that he was waiting for the promise. God gave him the promise, and he's, and he's so eager to help. He's like, how can I help you, God? And screws things up by trying to help. Judah doesn't even know he's playing the game. Judah is a guy who's just living his life, trying to get things situated in a way that helps him out. And he doesn't even realize that he's part of God's plan at all until later on. So... That's the story I want to tell you this morning. All right? Can we track? Can we track? Yes. All right. We're going to be in Genesis again in chapter 37. Genesis chapter 37. If you're using a story Bible, it's on page 25. If you're using a blue Bible, it's on page 39. Um, But we're going to be in Genesis chapter 37. And as you're turning there and we're getting there, let's pray together. God, we thank you for who you are, and we thank you for your word that you shared with us the way that you acted in history. And Lord, as we look at this character, as we look at this person that you selected and that you used and that you shaped, um, Father, we pray that you would make your work clear to us. And Father, as we read his story and we read how you worked in his life, Lord, we pray that you would help us to see where you are working in our lives too. 
where we know that something's going on, but maybe we're not sure exactly what that is. Lord, we pray that at the end of all of this, we might trust you a little bit more while we wait for you to finish the things you promised to do. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So one of the reasons why we don't talk about Judah very much is that Judah's brother was Joseph. And if you are you familiar with the Bible and you've heard the story of Joseph, do we know who Joseph is? If, I could, if you don't know who Joseph is, I'll give you a picture. This is Joseph. <laughs> Joseph was the firstborn son of Jacob's favorite wife. Now, see, if you think your family has some issues, like y'all haven't read the Bible, it gets pretty crazy. So Jacob ended up with four wives, and the one that he liked the best was Rachel, and Rachel couldn't have kids. He had kids by all his other wives, but Rachel didn't have any kids. And so when she had kids, it was a big deal, and Joseph was the firstborn of Jacob's favorite wife. And he had a little brother. His name was Benjamin. We'll get to him later. But, but Joseph starts having these dreams. And he's telling his other 11 brothers, like, hey, I had this really cool dream that I'm going to be the best. And y'all are going to come and you're going to bow down to me. And if you're an older brother and your little brother tells you, like, you're going you're gonna to answer to me when the day comes... Like, you're, you're not going to like that. And so these first couple of chapters that we're talking about Joseph's life, Joseph is just kind of like a snotty brat. Like, he's not out working when all the other brothers are working. His dad gives him special clothes and special privileges. And are we surprised that his other brothers don't like him? No. So it happens one day that, that Jacob sends Joseph out to go and collect his brothers. And the brothers see him coming in his fancy clothes. And they're like, I know what we're going to do. We're going to get rid of this kid once and for all. So would you read with me? We're going to be in Genesis chapter 37. And I'm going to begin in verse 18. Genesis chapter 37, verse 18. And I'll turn there too. They saw him from afar. So his brothers saw Joseph from afar. And before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will, and we will see what will become of all of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he, might, that he might rescue him out of their hand and restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty, and there was no water in it. And they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh, and his brothers listened to him. So when Joseph is the snotty kid... Judah is practical. The brothers have come up with this plan that they're going to get rid of Joseph once and for all, and so they're going to, they're going to kill him and blame it on a wild animal. 
And Reuben, who's the oldest brother, he says, let's not kill him. Let's just put him in this pit. It's a cistern. It's a dry cistern where normally water would be collected. But they're like, no, let's just put him in the pit and we'll just leave him. And then we don't have his blood on our hands. And Judah's a pragmatic kind of guy. He says, what do we profit if we leave this kid to die of thirst in a cistern? Like, let's sell him. Let's make some money. And this is the first that we really get an insight into how Judah thinks. See, Judah is the fourthborn. He's the middle child. Anybody middle child in here? Yeah, middle child. <laughs> so he's, he, he's, he doesn't have the responsibility of being the firstborn. He's not like coddled and taken care of like the baby. He's just trying to make things work for him in the middle. And he, he tries to keep the peace a little bit. We're not going to kill him. He is our flesh and blood, but we'll make a little bit of money on the side, and that'll ease the pain a little bit. He's, he's selfish. He's concerned about his own, um, his own well-being. And this is actually a pattern for him. See, where all the 12 brothers kind of lived together, Judah moved away from the family. He moved down south, and instead of being concerned about the kind of relationships that he built, he ended up marrying into the people that they were told not to marry. And as a result of this, he had a couple of sons. He had three sons. And the sons weren't any good. His oldest son got married to a lady named Tamar. And the oldest son, like, <laughs> you got to you got to give God some credit. Like if you're listed in, if you get your name in the Bible, like you feel like, all right, maybe I'm doing all right. But his name's in the Bible and God just says he was wicked, so I killed him. So I don't know what he did, um, but he was not on God's good side. So Judah's firstborn son was killed by God and the secondborn son acted wickedly. Now he was supposed to take Tamar as his wife and give her children so that the name would continue on because inheritance was passed through the sons. It's not like today where if the husband dies, it goes to the wife. It's when the husband dies, it goes to the firstborn son. And if the son doesn't have kids of his own, then the inheritance stops. So they're concerned with passing the inheritance on. And the secondborn son, Judah's second kid, is like, I'm not raising up kids for that. Like, I'm going to get the inheritance. Like, why would I do something that's going to get me written out of the will, essentially. He says, as long as, as long as my older brother doesn't have any kids, I get the inheritance. And so he's wicked and God kills him. But I wonder where he learned that kind of pragmatic behavior from. And so Judah looks at this situation. He says, all right, I had, one I had three sons. The first son married Tamar. He died. Second son married Tamar. She died. I got one. He died. I got one more son. And he's supposed to marry Tamar. You know what? Why don't we just hold off on this? Like, Tamar, why don't you go back to your father's house? And then when my, when my last son is old enough, then I'll give him to marry to you. He's like, I'll, I'll, I'll make this good. But essentially what he's doing is passing the buck, saying, I don't want to take responsibility for you. I don't want to take care of you. Yes, I brought you into my family, but it's not cost effective for me anymore. So go deal with it yourself. He's pragmatic. We don't know anybody like this, unfortunately. The Bible is so old and, and outdated and not actually relevant to people that we know. <clears throat> but that's just the beginning of the story. It gets a little bit more uncomfortable. If you look at Genesis chapter 38, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 12, um, 
Genesis 38, verse 12, in the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. So his wife passes away. And when, when Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adullite. So his wife passes away, and he's sad. And when the time of mourning is over, he's like, all right, well, back to work. Let's get back to work. Like, I'm, I'm bummed. Obviously, my wife is gone, but life goes on. we got to make this happen. Verse 13, when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance of Anaim, which is on the road to Timnah. So she sat where he knew he was going to pass by. For she saw that Selah was grown up, which was the third son, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come. Let me come in to you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? And he answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave, to, he gave them to her, and he went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. So I'm going to pause right there. We're going to read the rest of the story. So what happened is he said, I'm going to give you my third son when he's old enough. Tamar's sitting there going, he's old enough. Why are we not getting married? And she does, she tricks him. She pretends to be a prostitute and they have sex. And she gets pregnant by her father-in-law. So this is a story we don't hear in church very often. This is an uncomfortable thing to look at. It, there's a moral wrong that happened here, right? There's deception and there's uh, sexual sin. Like it's, it's just all wrong. There's nothing good can come of this, right? And the, the thing that she says, he says, well, I'm going to send you a goat. She says, how will I know that you don't have any goats with you? Like, how do I know that you're going to send me a goat? And she like asks for his driver's license. Like, I'll hold your driver's license until you send me the goat. But it's not just a driver's license. It's like your driver's license and your passport and your birth certificate. Like she get every form of identification that he had to himself. She bore it. Like she said, I'm going to hold this until you send me the goat. Right? So. Let's continue reading in verse 20. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where's the cult prostitute who is at Anaim at the roadside? They said to her, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. So Judah replied, "Now nah, let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. So, no prostitute. Dudes are like, there's never a prostitute around here. And who do you think we are? Verse 24. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. And as she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, Please identify who these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since, she did not, since I did not give her to son, Selah, and he did not know her again. So, 
He hears that his daughter-in-law, whom he's kind of responsible for, but letting somebody else pay the bills on, he's like, he hears that she's pregnant, and he's mad. He says, let her be burned. And she says, oh, yeah, sure, but I just want you to know the father of my child is the person whose passport picture is on here. Like, you can have this back now. And she said, he said, she's more righteous than I. She did, she had to get for herself because I was treating her wrongly. And this is where his pragmatism becomes, begins to come into conflict. So now that we've had like this bright and encouraging story, are we all ready to go back into our lives in the week and be like, yeah, let's, let's, let's live for Jesus. Like, are we encouraged by this? Does anybody see any good in this story? Is this fun? No, this isn't a fun story. It seems like there are no bright spots in this. A wicked guy does wicked to a wicked woman who does wicked, and they get wicked out of it, and it's just wicked. It's messed up. And, and if Eve were around to hear it, can you hear her heart saying, God, I thought you were going to take care of wickedness in the world. You said that you were going to crush the serpent, and every time I turn around, my kids are doing wicked stuff. The world is evil. Are you going to solve this problem? You said that you would. And life doesn't get any easier for Judah. You know, maybe 10 years go by after this incident, and there's famine in the land. I don't know whether the rains didn't come at the right time or it just there wasn't any food to eat. And so his dad calls him in and says, Hey, Judah, rest of the boys, there ain't any food in the land. It's not here. We're going to starve to death if we stay here. But I hear that in Egypt... They've got stockpiles of food. For some reason, they've got extra. So why don't you and your brothers go down to Egypt and get us some food? And so they travel down to Egypt hundreds and hundreds of miles. I don't know if they're walking or carrying on a mule or a donkey or what that is, but it's, it's a long, long trip. And they go, and they're hoping to buy food, so they're carrying their money with them. And it's not like a cash or credit card. Like the, the identity theft was literally punch you in the nose and take your gold. Like, there's dangerous. And they're on this journey, and they finally arrive in Egypt, and they have to go and talk to this governor who's the one who's doling out the food. And they talk to this governor, and the governor sees these men come in, and Judah's just walking in. is like, all right, we're going to be able to buy some food. Here's my money. Everybody speaks the universal language of gold. I'm practical. Like, here's my gold. Give me bread. And the governor says, how many brothers are you? Well, they said, well, you know, there were 12 of us, but one of us died, and so there's 11. And 10 of us are here because dad won't let Benjamin, the youngest brother of the favorite wife, he won't let him leave his sight. Like, now that, now that, that Joseph kid died. He says, okay, well, what I want you to do is I want you to buy this bread, and then I want you to go back and bring for me your youngest brother. And they're like, what, what, what? no, we can't. Like, you don't understand. Like, dad won't let him leave his sight. And the governor says, no, 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 no. You are not you're not going to be able to buy bread here anymore. You guys are going to starve to death unless you bring me your youngest brother. And by the way, I'm going to keep another one of you until you come back with your youngest brother. And so they get back on the road. They buy their bread, and they're heading back home. Let's look at uh, Genesis chapter 42. And verse 35. 
So they're heading back home after having bought Egypt. They lost a brother on the way. In verse 35, as they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they went, and when they saw their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon, the brother you left in Egypt, is no more. And now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. Then Reuben, the oldest, said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. But he said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. You would bring me to death. I would die if you take Benjamin and something happened to Benjamin. Not only is the journey dangerous, but you guys have already obviously made this governor mad, and somehow you bought bread and all your gold ended up coming back with you still. I don't know how that worked out, but this is an uncomfortable situation. Like, it's not going to happen. And the brothers know, well, no, he talked to that governor, and he said the only way we'd be able to buy bread is if we brought Benjamin back with us. Like, Dad, it's not going to work. And Reuben, who's the firstborn, the oldest son, says, look, Dad, I know this is a scary situation, but I'll give you my two sons. If I do not bring Benjamin back to you, I'll give you my two sons. And Jacob says, no, it's not enough. But look at what happens next, because food runs out in chapter 43. Now the famine was severe in the land, and when they had eaten the grain that they had bought from Egypt, their father said to them, go again. Buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel uh, is another name for Jacob. He said, Why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? They replied, The man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, Is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was an answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, Bring your brother down? Verse 8. And Judah said to Israel his father, Send the boy with me. And we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge for, of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would have gone now and returned twice. So where Reuben stands up and says, you can have my kids, Judah stands up and says, I will be the pledge. This pragmatic guy has been through so much heartache and he's made this journey and he's seeing how things are working out and he says, it's not enough for me to offer you my one last living son, dad. I myself will be the pledge. And this is a thing that if, if you've read this story before, we might not have ever picked it up if we weren't just focusing in laser focused on Judah. That the same guy who said, it's not going to be profitable for us to keep Joseph alive, also says, I will be the pledge. Require his life from me. There's been a lot that's going on in Judah's life. He offers himself. And as they go back to Egypt, 
they get invited to the governor's house. Like they walk in and the governor says, hey, y'all come, y'all come have a meal with me, which is, it never happens. Like this is red flags all over the place. You know that you walked out of there with all the bread that you wanted to buy and your money. And now the governor's inviting you to his palace as soon as you show back up. Like the red flags. And they have a meal. And they sit down at the meal and their, their seats are all set. They got nameplates. I don't know how they worked that out, but they've got nameplates for the meal and they're lined up in birthright order. Like, this is goofy. How did that happen? And so they leave the meal and they're going out. They have bought their bread and they're driving away. They got Simeon back, who they had left. They, you know, the governor got to meet Benjamin. So now we're leaving with Benjamin and we're leaving and they're driving away from Egypt and they hear this big rumble and the chariots of Egypt are coming after them. Said, why would you steal from the governor's house? Because when they left, some cups went with them. Gold cups, expensive cups. And so the Egyptians have come back and said, why would you steal? Like, don't you know that we're the only ones in the whole world who have bread right now? Why would you try to make us angry? And, and, and they say, no, 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 we didn't steal anything. We, like, we have not stolen anything. Let the person with whom you find the cups bear the guilt and be taken back as prisoner. Guess whose bag the cup was in? Benjamin's. And you can just see Judah. Oh, my gosh. Ben. <laughs> Don't you know I put my neck on the line for you? Why would you do this? And so they have to go back to Egypt and they have to talk to the governor again. And Judah has to explain what has happened. And he's questioned about it. Let's read together chapter 44 and verse 30. So Judah has given a whole recap of everything that they've been through since the beginning of this story. And, and Judah says, Now therefore, as soon as I came to your servant, so the governor's servant, my father, or excuse me, as soon as I came to your servant, my father, so as soon as I came home to Jacob, and the boy is not with us then, as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as my father sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. So Judah has given this whole recap of everything that's happening. He says, Look, governor, I gave my life as a promise. And if I go back to my father, like, I'm not going to be able to make it up to him because he's going to die immediately. And so rather than going back to my father and explaining that I've lost his son, like, let me stay with you and I will take Benjamin's punishment. And you can send him back to his father and his father will live and I'll take the punishment and everything will be right. Like, let me take, like, I will lay down my life to make sure that this happens. Chapter 45, verse 1. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out for me. So no one stayed with Joseph, stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? 
But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son, Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. So Judah said, don't, don't take Benjamin. <laughs> like it'll kill my dad. Like take me. I'll lay my life down. And the man who sold his brother to make a buck tells his brother, I'll give my life for this one. And it's more than Joseph can handle. See, from we, we, when we read this story in Genesis, it's very focused in on Joseph and what God did in Joseph's life. But when we read it from Judah's perspective, he had no idea. He just knows this governor's given him a hard time. And he knows that everything in his life has gone wrong. And all that he can see is the trouble that just keeps piling on. First, we don't have food. And then we go to get food. And we get the food, but then our money shows back up. And then we have to go back and get our brother. And it's going to kill my dad. And now I've come back. And then my brother has somehow stolen these cups. And i got to take responsibility for this. And God, I thought you would, like, take care of your people here. All I see is trouble. And can you imagine that sinking feeling to realize that the man whom you've been begging for food says, I am your brother whom you sold into slavery. And all that heart work, all the pain and the sorrow that God's been doing in Judah's life, all the situation with Tamar, it's like, oh, God, like, if, if it were me, God, just kill me now. <laughs> Just kill me now, we'll call it even. <laughs> I don't know what else to do. I have nowhere else to turn. And that's Judah's story. His family's preserved. They come into Egypt, they have food, they're taken care of. And when it comes down to time for his father to pass away in his old age, read with me chapter 49. And I'm just going to read verse 8, or beginning in verse 8. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion, as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall, the obedience, shall be the obedience of the peoples. So the father gives blessings to all the sons. And the firstborn son, he gets written out. He goofed up. And we don't really want to talk about Reuben at all. And then there's two more sons 
Like Judah is fourth in line. There's no reason why he should be given the line of inheritance. We know that inheritance has been a big headache in his life. Like he's caused him a lot of heartache trying to secure an inheritance. And all of the things that he's, that God has broken him of and all of the things that he's been through. Now Jacob turns to him and says, the scepter shall not pass from your hand. You shall be primary among your brothers. Dad, what do you, I'm number four. I'm the middle child. My birthday gets forgotten every year. What do you mean I'm going to rule over my brother? What do you mean the scepter shall not pass from my hand? I'm going to skip a couple pictures here. We don't have to be aware of God's plan to be shaped by it. See, Judah was a guy who was just trying to make life work for him and didn't realize that all of the trouble and all of the turmoil and all of the roadblocks in his life were actually God shaping him to be the kind of man that he needed him to be, to put him in a place of position that he could be a leader amongst his brothers. Where initially he was sneaky and tricked his brothers into selling Joseph, he stands up and says, I will not trick you, I will lay my life down and do what is right. And that's the journey of a real person. But we don't have to be aware of God's plan to be shaped by it. We're talking about the waiting game. We don't have to know that there have been 20 generations and since God promised that he was going to take care of sin to realize that we are the person whom God is going to choose. Here's, here's the brain exploding. Judah is Jesus' great, 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 etc. grandfather. Tamar is Jesus's great, 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 great grandmother. Like Judah and Tamar and all that happened and all the sin that was in that situation, like Jesus came out of that. When you read, when you read like royal lineages and things like that, you, they kind of scrub out those crazy uncles that just kind of went, like Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus says, my grandmother was Tamar. She pretended to be a prostitute and got knocked up by her father-in-law. And later on, he'll say, my grandma was Rahab. She was a prostitute. Like Jesus doesn't scrub his family line. He uses that and says, my purpose in the world is to redeem it. I don't take away the old, like I make it new again. And so for us, what mistakes have you made that you're convinced God can't redeem? Like if I'm Judah and I'm looking at my life and I'm looking at the mistakes that I made with my daughter-in-law, like, I'm going to carry that guilt. God couldn't ever forgive me of this. God couldn't ever make this work out for good. I'm a, I'm, I'm a selfish man. I'm just trying to make life work for me. Like, God couldn't fix this. What mistakes have you made that you're convinced God can't redeem? Because we make them. up to and including taking a life. What need is there in your life that God is using to draw you into his design? 
our felt needs, the turmoil that we face, the things that we look at life and go, God, like I thought you were going to help me with this. He's saying, yeah, I am, but you need to feel it to know that you're going to need me. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And will you lay down your design to live out his? See, when we come to understand, we don't have to understand to begin with, but when we come to understand what God is doing in the world and in our lives, will we lay down my own preferences and say, yeah, Jesus, I'm going to follow you and what you want for me. You've brought me through a whole lot of bad decisions that I've made. And I can't fix any of them. But I see in you the hope of redemption. I see in you the chance to people be blessed by my life. The promise that you made to Eve that she never saw. The promise that you made to Abraham that he bent over backwards to try to make happen and couldn't. The promises passed down through Judah, the guy who wanted nothing to do with it and didn't really care that much. And so when you come to understand what God is doing in the world, will you lay down your design to live out his? Because we don't need to be aware of God's plan to be shaped by it. Let's pray together. again for listening. We hope you've been challenged, encouraged, and helped by God and His Word. If you want more information about Grace Church of Ocala or would like to get in contact with us, please visit our home on the internet, ocalagrace.org. And if we haven't met yet, we hope to talk with you soon.